The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. with us. Um, we're the second week into a series. We're going to work through the book of Hebrews, um, pretty much to chapter 10, really. Um, and so we're calling this series Better Than. Um, and it kind of picks up on the author's main theme that runs through the whole book, which is that Jesus is better than the Old Testament, um, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic uh, sacrificial system that Moses brought in Judaism. So his big point runs throughout this whole book. And he kind of comes at it in lots of different ways. And so that's kind of where we're going uh, and the theme that we're exploring. Last week, we looked at just the first three verses of chapter one. uh, uh, And we looked at how Jesus is God's superior revelation. Jesus is greater than the prophets of the Old Testament uh, because Jesus is God's final word, uh, God's ultimate revelation. Um, And so we we explored what that meant by looking at how amazing these titles are um, that the writer of the Hebrews gives right at the beginning of this book. And so today we're exploring a big chunk from chapter 4 all the way to the end of, uh, sorry, verse 4 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2. So we've been encouraging people to come having pre-read these passages. And if you've been subscribing to the church e-newsletter, we'll be putting it in there every week what the next week's reading will be so you can come pre-read because it is going to be challenging for us to read through big slabs of Scripture, even though we love doing that at PC. Sometimes it's it's difficult when it's a really big passage. Um, so next week we're going to look at chapter 3 and all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. So it's another big chunk. So I encourage you to read ahead and come prepared to do that. Also, bring your Bibles, whether that's a paper Bible or a device uh, that you can follow along. Again, we, it's so easy to get accustomed to everything being up on the screen. Uh, well, we're not going to put the Bible passages up there because we're just going to be reading through and working through them. Um, so we'd, we'd be having to put up all all the verses as we go, which is a bit difficult. So please bring your Bibles, bring your device so you can follow along and have them open so you're kind of in the text with us because otherwise you're just not able to follow along if you if you don't see what we're talking about. So I encourage you, um, even now, if you have your device, your Bible, grab those um, and we will be launching into this. So let me pray and we'll get straight into it. Father, thank you for this incredible book. We thank you for your word that's living and active, uh, which is a lot of quote that comes from this book. It is powerful and your word transforms our lives. And so we pray, God, will you send your Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts and our minds that we would receive all that you have for us. Help me to communicate it faithfully um, that your name would be glorified in Jesus' name. So this morning we're exploring this second idea uh, that the author presents to us, that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels. Um, And so as a launching point, I want you to imagine a scenario. This year was our 40th anniversary. Uh, We celebrated that in February. And just imagine if I was able to convince Hugh Jackman to have come to our anniversary. Now, that might seem kind of random, but I actually went to uni uh, with Hugh Jackman. He was in some of my classes, and we used to play basketball together. And Dash has always said, why haven't you emailed him and said, hey, it's Hillary? I said, he probably doesn't remember me. So imagine if I was somehow able to convince Hugh Jackman to come to our reunion. 
And then also we had Stefan Dennis invited to come to the reunion. And we were so excited that Stefan Dennis was coming that we didn't pay any attention to Hugh Jackman. And we were just so excited about Stefan Dennis. Now you're looking at me like, who is Stefan Dennis? Well, this picture might jog your memory. It's the guy who plays Paul Robinson on Neighbours, right? So, you know, he, he's an actor. He's an Australian, you know, celebrity. But it would be that ridiculous if we would be so excited about this guy and not about Hugh Jackman, who's also an Australian actor. But that's kind of what the author of the Hebrews is trying to do with this group of people who, for whatever reason, were were at risk of abandoning Jesus, abandoning their wonder and their worship and their commitment to Jesus, and kind of going back to Judaism, going back to their old religious system. Now, this... Scholars believe that this letter was written to probably Jewish Christians, hence the focus on the, on the mosaic system, um, and probably to a bunch of people who are experiencing persecution under the Roman Empire. And so that's why they're kind of tempted to give up on Jesus because it was getting too hard. Chapter 10 gives us some insight that they were experiencing some hardship, the confiscation of property and a whole bunch of different things. And, and perhaps that was the reason why they were considering giving up on Jesus and going back to Judaism because Judaism was protected by Roman law. And so they would be able to kind of not experience some of that persecution. That's helpful in understanding why the writer is writing this letter. But I want to ask you this question. I wonder what would make you give up on Jesus? I wonder what would make you consider going back to the life that you had before you came to know Christ? For these guys, it was persecution. And for many people today, that would do it too. Because Jesus, in the parable of the sower, said that some people would never fully mature and produce fruit because of persecution. The other reason he gave was being caught up in the distractions of the world, getting choked. I wonder what would make you turn away from Jesus. That is the question that the writer of the Hebrews is wanting to speak to and address because he wants to show these people that Jesus is far greater, far more superior, far more excellent, far more wonderful than anything they knew under Judaism. So why would they go back to it? And so in this particular passage that we're looking at, his focus is on angels. Now we might think, why angels? Why bother with angels? Angels aren't a big part of our Christian experience today. But in Judaism, angels play a significant role. Because in Deuteronomy 32, is that the reference right? It says this, 33.2. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. What this is saying is that the way God communicated the Lord, Torah, to Moses was through angelic involvement. So in Judaism, angels play a really, really important role in the giving of Torah, in the giving of the religious system that was to become Judaism. And so in in the Jewish mindset, going back Back to the old covenant would involve going back to angels, as it were. And so this is where the writer is starting his critique of deconstructing Judaism by beginning with the messengers that brought about God's message and God's word to Israel through angels. And so we pick it up in verse 4. He says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And in the rest of this chapter, what the writer does is systematically undermine any confidence they might have had in angels by showing them 
clearly, beyond any doubt, that Jesus is greater than. Jesus is better than. Jesus is superior to the angels. And what he does is he gives them five reasons that Jesus is better. And then he supports each of them with Old Testament scriptures, predominantly from the Psalms and predominantly from Messianic Psalms, which is a fancy way of saying Psalms that were written and applied to this person that Jews were expecting to come to rescue them and redeem them from oppression, be the liberator, this divine king figure that was going to come. And he intentionally chooses verses from those Psalms to prove that Jesus is that person and therefore Jesus is superior to the angels. And so I'm just going to go through these really quick. The references that he uses, the Old Testament references are probably in the footnotes of your Bible. So if you're wondering where those passages come from, you'll see them in the footnotes. But here's the, here's the five affirmations that he makes to prove this point. Number one, that Jesus is the Son. Verse five, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. That's his first thing. Jesus is superior because he has a better name. He has the name Son. Now, in the Old Testament, God does refer to the angels collectively as the sons of God. For instance, in Job, it refers to that. But nowhere does it make the singular reference to anyone. This is my son. And the writer says, God's saying that about Jesus, not to any angel. So why would you go back to angels why would you not stick with the son? The title, his name is better, more superior than angels. The second argument is in the next two verses. And again, when God brings his firstborn to the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. He's saying that Jesus is the firstborn that is worshipped by angels and served by angels. Therefore, he's superior. Now again, firstborn needs a bit of explanation. Some cults and false religions use this to say, see, Jesus is created. Jesus is not divine. Jesus is not God. He's the firstborn of God. But when the Bible uses firstborn, it's not meaning born first. It's a title. It's a, a statement of status and honor and dignity. It's saying Jesus is preeminent over all creation. So, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, when it uses that same expression, firstborn over creation, it's not saying Jesus was born first. It's saying Jesus is over all of creation. And we know that to be the case because it says that, verse 6, angels worship him. Now, angels would not worship anyone that was not God. Angels would not worship any other creature. And the fact that the writer says, why would you go back to angels when Jesus, the son, the firstborn, is worshipped by angels and is served by angels? The third argument is in the next verses. Verse 8, but about the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. You have loved righteousness and hated um, wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set above your companions by anointing with the oil of joy. Notice what he says. Your throne, O God. Again, he's making it so clear that Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And Jesus is sitting enthroned. No angel is sitting on that throne. Angels bow before the one that's seated on the throne. So why go back to angels? Because Jesus is better. Jesus is on the throne served and worshipped by angels. 
Number four, he also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth. He's talking about Jesus being the eternal creator. He says, creation will come and go. They will perish, verse 11. You will roll them up like a robe, verse 12. But you remain the same and your years will never end. Jesus is the eternal creator. He's the agent that God used to bring about all that we see and know. Angels are just created beings like you and me. But Jesus is the creator that sits enthroned above everything. Fifthly, to which of the angels, verse 13, did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your seat? Again, he's saying Jesus is the sovereign one. He's the boss of everything. Paul picks up this in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says that Jesus is seated at the right hand. That word right hand means the place of honor, the place of authority, the place of ultimate rule. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Over, Paul says, every principality and every power and every rule and every dominion and every angel. So much so that the writer here says in verse 14, angels are just ministering spirits. They're the ones that are sent to serve the bidding of the Son. They're the ones sent to serve us who have inherited salvation because of the Son. So why would you go back to angels? Jesus Christ is superior to angels. Stick with Him. Be committed to Him. Don't give up on Him. And so that's, that then leads to the next passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, where now the writer begins to unpack the implication of what he's just taught. And you'll see this as you journey through the book of Hebrews, where the, the writer will often expound theology and doctrine and, and tell us different truths about Jesus and about God. And then he says, now this is the implication. This is what you're supposed to do in response to that. And often they come in the shape of warnings. And this is the first of five warnings that appear in the book of Hebrews. And they get more and more severe as the book goes. Here, the warning is to not drift away, to not neglect, to not ignore the Word of God revealed through the Son of God, through the ultimate revelation of God. Don't drift. Don't neglect it. By the time we get to chapter 12 and verse 25, the, the warning is much more severe. He says, don't refuse, don't reject the Word of God. And so we see in these first of five warnings, the point he's trying to make is pay attention. Verse 1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Because we've heard a superior word from a superior one. And so we need to pay careful attention to be focused, to be intentional, to not lose sight, to not be listening to other voices, to not be distracted. And he's saying we have to pay careful attention. Why? So that we do not drift away. Notice he's not saying so that here, he's not saying so that we, we don't reject, we don't turn our backs on Jesus. No, he's talking about something that's very, very subtle. And, and drifting is very dangerous because it is so easy, because it is so subtle. That's why every ship, every boat has an anchor. Because when it's sitting on the tide, it doesn't need to do anything to drift. It just happens. Drifting is inevitable. I think it was Einstein's law of entropy that says that anything left to itself heads towards chaos. It just is the way it is in our fallen, broken world. If we don't pay attention to something, it deteriorates. 
And the, the word that he has in mind here is just losing focus, a, a gradual drifting. And again, you've probably experienced that in your life. I've experienced that in my life. Maybe there was times and seasons in your life where you weren't as passionate, when you weren't as switched on and as committed to Jesus because of a whole bunch of different things that were going on. You found yourself drifting and drifting and drifting. And then by the grace of God, something or someone stepped into your life that was like a wake-up call and you kind of go, whoa, how far I've drifted from where I was. Or maybe you, you can recognize this because you know people, friends maybe, family members maybe, that once were so passionate for Jesus, so full on for Jesus, so devoted to Jesus. They love God and they worship God and they were in church and all of that. And then they're not there anymore. They're not in church. They're not following Jesus. They're not serving God in any way. They just drifted. And what makes it so dangerous is that in all of those cases, probably it didn't happen overnight. Think about the people that you know. Think about how they ended up where they are now. It was probably a gradual slow decline. That's what he's speaking to. He's saying, pay careful attention so that you don't drift. And in verse 2, he says, so that you don't ignore so great a salvation. This, this is about, again, neglect of ignoring. I remember when I was um, younger and it's going camping, Love going camping with rangers. We used to build these massive bonfires. And, you know, we'd get all these logs and we'd set it on fire. And the thing would just be roaring. And it was huge. And you couldn't get very close because it was so hot. And, it, you know, you could just sit there and enjoy it and go, oh, wow, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this great? We're loving this. But eventually, guaranteed every time, if we did nothing, that huge roaring bonfire would die to just a handful of embers by the end of the night. It would just happen. And that's the point. That's what he's trying to get at. Unless we intentionally stoke the fire, we add fuel to the fire, we add logs onto the fire, if we keep, unless we feed that fire, it will die down. And the writer is saying, that's the warning. Be aware, drift, neglect, ignoring this great salvation. And then he gives two reasons why this is so serious. He's, the first one is that, that we've received a stronger word. He's saying he's using a, a well-known Hebrew argument, which is going from the lesser to the greater. And he says this, verse 2, For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation, that word carries the idea of intentionally rebelling against the revealed word of God, and disobedience, that word carries the idea of kind of omission or neglecting to do the, the right things that God has asked of us to do. They received their just punishment. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? The point he's trying to make is if God held people accountable to a word that was received through angels, and I've just proved to you that Jesus is more is greater, is more superior, supreme than angels. And the word that has come through Jesus is more important, more weighty, more supreme than the word through the angels. Then how much more accountable are we? How much more culpable will we be? How much more seriously will God hold us accountable who've heard this revelation from the Son? The second reason, he says, is that the word that you've received is not just a stronger word. It's a surer word. It's a reliable word. Because he goes on to say in verse 3, this salvation was first announced by the Lord himself. There was no mediator. 
It wasn't through angels. It wasn't through Moses. Because remember in the old covenant, Moses went up the mountain, heard the word and brought it to the people. No, this is different. This is God himself through the Son speaking to us. And what's more, that word was confirmed to us by those who've heard him. This is not, it is secondhand, but it is secondhand from eyewitnesses, from people who heard and saw and encountered Jesus for themselves. So it's a reliable word. It's a trustworthy word because those who've communicated, to, communicated it to us heard it firsthand from Jesus himself. But the third aspect of this sureness is the fact that God, verse 4, has also testified to it by signs and wonders and miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's saying this word is sure. This word that you've heard, that you've received, is reliable. And therefore, you need to take it seriously. That's why you need to pay the most careful attention and not drift and not neglect and not ignore it. Because it is a stronger word that we have received and it is a more reliable word that we have received. And then he kind of moves on almost to come back to his discussion about angels in verse 5. It is not the angels, not two angels that he has subjected the world to come about, what, about which we are speaking. So he's bringing back this discussion about angels. It's almost like he gets to verse 14 and then he goes, okay, I need to kind of apply this to you right now because this is serious what I'm saying. And then he almost kind of goes, okay, but I need to come back and kind of finish what I wanted to say about angels. But here... It's almost like he's wanting to clarify something in light of an objection that may be raised about what he's saying. And he goes on to say, verse 6, But there is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? And he's quoting from, again, Psalms, Psalm 8, in fact. And he's wanting to address this possible objection that might be raised by someone. And this objection sounds like this. So, okay. You've established for us that Jesus is greater. We, we get it. He's greater than the angels. He's the son. He's seated and thrown. But Jesus became human. He, he was incarnated. So doesn't that make him inferior now? Because angels are spirit beings. They don't have bodies. So don't they now trump Jesus because he's the son, the eternal creator, has now become human? Doesn't that make him now less significant, less important than angels? That's the kind of objection he's speaking to. And then he goes on to, to kind of give these four arguments that we will look at to counter that argument. And what he's trying to do is say this. The fact that Jesus became human, although it might seem like it makes him inferior to the angels, it actually isn't. It actually is the opposite. His humanity enabled him to achieve the plan that God always had. And the plan was for God to save us. And Jesus, through his humanity, was able to accomplish and achieve for us what, what angels, no angel could ever do because they're not human. And so rather than Jesus' humanity being kind of a negative thing and a liability uh, and a weakness, it actually demonstrates the very thing I've been saying all along, which is Jesus is greater because he was human, because his humanity enabled him to accomplish what no angel could have. Well, what are those things? There's four of them. The first one is actually on the back of what he's just quoted from Psalm 8. It says, in putting everything under, under them, talking about humans, verse 8, God left nothing that is not subject to them. So that takes us back to the garden. So the first thing that Jesus does is because of his humanity, 
He has regained the dominion that humanity lost in Genesis 3. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them the authority to rule and reign over his created world, Genesis chapter 1. And then Adam and Eve, our first, uh, the first humans, our forefathers, they rejected God. They rebelled against God. They turned their back against God and wanted to be autonomous and wanted to rule and reign on their own. And God judged them for that and death entered the world. And then as Genesis 3 accounts, the created world now was in rebellion against Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were no longer in dominion. And so the writer picks that up in verse 9, uh, sorry, verse 8, part C. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to us. We don't see everything subject to them. So yes, God set this ideal that Adam and Eve, humans, were supposed to rule and reign and be stewards over God's creation. But because of their sin, they lost that. Even though he would say, and he's quoting Psalm 8 to prove that, humans are less than angels. Absolutely, but God gave them greater privileges, greater responsibility than he ever gave any of the angels. And that was lost. But Jesus, by identifying completely with us as humans, has now regained all of that was lost. And so verse 9 is a big but in the Bible. But we do see Jesus, yes, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, but now he's crowned with glory and honor through his perfect life, his death on the cross and the resurrection and then the ascension to the right hand of the Father. We see him now in his glorified honored, crowned position because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You'll see the writer continually mention the suffering and the death of Jesus. And one of the other things you'll notice as we go is that God is mentioned throughout this passage. See, sometimes when we focus on Jesus and what Jesus did and does, we kind of think, okay, Jesus is doing all of that on his own. But the writer says, God left nothing that is not subject to him. It is now through the grace of God that this is all happening. That, that, um, that God for whom uh, and through whom everything is, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect. It's God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, through the work of the Son, is accomplishing his saving work to reestablish and regain the dominion that was lost. Second thing that Jesus has accomplished because of his humanity. And this is, the first one was mind-blowing because Revelation says that one day we will rule and reign with Christ because his humanity has identified him as the second perfect Adam and we now are following in his footsteps is that he makes us part of God's family. He makes us part of God's family. And the writer says in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through everything should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now let me unpack that a little bit. Because again, people have latched onto that, this idea that somehow Jesus was not perfect because he had to suffer to become perfect. No, that's not what Hebrews is saying. The word perfect there is to be understood as being an adequate or sufficient or excellent savior. That Jesus' suffering because of his identification with humanity enabled him to be the perfect savior. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. And that's something angels could never do because they're not human. But because Jesus fully identified with us and because of his suffering and his death on the cross to forgive us and pardon us of our sins, now we are in him and we are totally identified with his divine, glorious, exalted nature. We are one. And Jesus forever will be 
fully human. It's not like he just kind of took it on for a little bit and that's it. The almighty God, the triune God of the universe became like us so that we can become like him. We are now, we can call our God Father and Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. We are in the family of God. Listen to what J.I. Packer says, which is just so mind-blowing. He says this, God receives us as sons and daughters and loves us with the same steadfast affection with which he eternally loves his beloved only begotten. There are no distinctions of affection in the divine family. Think about that. Listen to this last line. We are all loved just as fully as Jesus is loved. That's what his humanity does. He has so identified himself with us that we are one with Christ. We are in Christ. And the Father loves us like he loves the Son. There's no distinction. Imagine Jesus walking around heaven going, we are family. Come on. I got all my brothers. and That's what it is. Because Jesus fully identified with our humanity. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. We call God our Father. How mind-blowing is that? No angel could accomplish that. And Jesus' humanity enabled that. Third thing, since the children have flesh and blood, verse 4, 14, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he can break the power of him who holds the power of death, Satan. He has disarmed Satan and he has conquered and defeated him so that we no longer have to fear death. Because death, the fear of death comes from the fear of judgment. That on the other side of death, we're going to have to stand and give an account to God, a holy God, for our sin. But because Jesus fully identified with our humanity and he lived a perfect sinless life and he died in our place as our atoning sacrifice, as our substitute, he stood in our place to take on himself the wrath and the judgment of God on himself. And he offers us forgiveness. He offers us peace. He offers us reconciliation. And he has united us to the Father. We don't need to fear death. Satan's got nothing on us. He's got no accusation. We read, I think, about Romans 8, in that there is no condemnation. He goes on to say, who will accuse us? No one. Who can condemn us? No one. Because Jesus became human and lived a perfect life that enabled him to die as our substitute. So Satan is disarmed. Death is defeated. The fear of death no longer needs to cripple us because we can stand holy and confident before our Father. The last one is that it enables him to be a a sympathizing high priest. And this is where the writer says, look, angels, they're not humans. And so they, they don't get humanity. But our God doesn't sit on a throne removed and distant no, he, he steps into our world. He puts skin on and he fully experiences everything that is part of the human experience mentally and emotionally and spiritually and physically. And yet he was sinless and he was perfect. Hebrews 4 goes on to say that he was tempted in every way yet without sin. And that's why he can be a faithful high priest because he didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself. And Hebrews will go on to talk a lot about that, that Jesus can offer himself as our sacrifice because he lived a perfect sinless life for your sin and my sin. 
But he can also be a merciful high priest to us because he understands us. He knows our weakness. He's been tempted. He's experienced the same harsh realities of what it means to be human. No angel can do that. And so he fulfills his role, verse 16, because he himself suffered. Sorry, verse 18. When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted tempted. It's his humanity that enables him to do that. And no angel can ever understand and help us when we're tempted, when we're struggling, when we're discouraged, when we're afraid, when we're worried, when we're anxious, because they don't get it. But our God, he gets it. He gets us because he stepped into our world, clothed in humanity, lived a perfect sinless life to die, to suffer, to experience the physicality of all of that. But even more than that, the abandonment of the father, the separation from his father, the break that came on that cross when he cried, why have you forsaken me? Because of our sin. And so he understands. And he can offer us this great salvation, which is why the, the writer of Hebrews says, that's the remedy. That's the remedy to drifting. That's the remedy to ignoring and and neglecting. It's keeping our eyes focused on this great salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. It's not losing sight of that. So as we kind of wrap up and close, I'm going to ask Andrew to come up, just quickly drawing some applications. And again, I'm not going to give you anything that the writer doesn't do. He's already given us the challenge in chapter 2. So I just want to unpack that and spell that out for you a little bit. He says, let's pay careful attention. Let's pay careful attention. And I want to ask you, are you paying careful attention to the salvation that you've received, to the word that we've received from this greater one? Are you intentional? Are you diligent? And he says, we want to pay careful attention so that we don't drift. We don't drift. For them... They were paying attention to and drifting towards angels. Let me ask you, who do you pay attention to? What are the voices that compete for attention in your life? Is it your culture? Is it your family? Is it the church? Is it the pastors? Is it your friends? Who competes for your attention? Who who is trying to be the alternate voice that speaks into your life? Who are you listening to? Maybe you're listening to yourself. Maybe you're listening to the voice of the enemy. And I want to encourage you, don't drift from the word of Jesus. Don't drift. Keep coming back. Keep reorienting yourself to this great salvation. Keep reminding yourself of what Christ has accomplished for you. He's regained our lost dominion. Oh, he's made us part of God's family. He's defeated the enemy. He's our faithful high priest. Keep reminding yourself so you don't drift. Easy to do. And then, are you neglecting this salvation? Do you see evidence of neglect in your life? Maybe things that you once used to do that you were passionate about doing, but you've lost focus, you've lost inspiration and motivation, again, remind yourself of what Christ has accomplished. The gospel, this great salvation. Throw some logs on that fire. And what are those logs? Well, they're the means of grace that God has given us to keep our hearts on fire, which is reading the Word. Get the Word into you. I know we bang on this over and over again in our church, 
And I'm sorry if it sounds like we're a broken record that just says the same thing over and over again. But we actually believe this, that being in the Word and being in prayer and being in community and worshiping together, which incidentally, the Hebrew writer goes on to say in chapter 10, don't forsake the assembly because we encourage one another when we do that, when we worship together. That's how you feed that fire. Now, I'm not going to say to you, you need to read a chapter a day and pray for an hour a day. No, I'm just saying be in the Word. It's the living Word of Jesus. There's no one greater that should be speaking into your life. I've just shown that. The writer of the Hebrews has shown that. Why would you not be in here? His words are life and they're peace and they're joy and they will speak into the very heart of your soul. And then talking to God and spending time hearing Him and listening to Him, meditating and being in community where you can encourage, that's how you not neglect. By putting those logs on the fire so that the fire can keep burning brightly. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes and just take a moment to I guess, reflect on where you are. And maybe you can see evidence of drift in your life. Maybe like me when I've been to the beach and I'm swimming in a strong current, and I'm having a great time, I'm enjoying myself, and, and then I look up to the beach and I see how far from where I started I've drifted. And maybe this morning it's your wake-up call to look up and see where you are. Have you drifted? What is God calling you to do this morning? To come back to Him. To pay careful attention to the word that has been spoken into your heart. How will you respond? Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, we worship you. Father, we come before you. Confidence. Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. Why don't we stand together? We're going to sing a song, just the chorus and bridge part. But I want to challenge you. I want to plead with you like the writer of Hebrews is doing with this audience he's writing to. Don't neglect this great salvation. Don't drift. If God is speaking to you, respond. Humble yourself. Repent and come back to Him. And if there are things that you were doing that you're not doing, I pray that you feel challenged to consider making them a part of your ongoing life. And if you'd like prayer this morning as we worship together, leave your seat and come. Whether it's If you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you want to know how you can be right with God and have peace in your heart and know the forgiveness that comes only through Jesus, we'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Or if you're struggling and if you feel that you've drifted and you really would love someone to pray with you and encourage you, we'd love to do that. Or if you have any other need, if you're sick in your body or you want us to stand and pray about a need or a challenge or a problem you're facing, we'd love to do that. So as we sing and as we worship, why don't you leave your seat and come and allow us to pray and minister to you. Thank you, Jesus.
Oh, let's worship him. He's worthy of worship. Oh, he's worthy of glory. Come on, why don't we lift our hands? Why don't we sing out? Why don't we declare our gratefulness to Jesus? He's a wonderful Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You 